Frankly, I find the entire experience baffling. Any attempt to laugh off the Manson murders as sitcom fodder embarrassing. That's from Rex Reed of The Observer. And here's Ben Sachs of the Chicago Reader. Though Tarantino mixes fiction and historical fact cleverly and confidently, I'm not sure what he wanted to achieve with the mix this time, and I'm not sure if he knew either. A couple of scathing reviews of Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As always, thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Thrilled to be back with all of you. Before we get rolling, let's make this clear. I've checked out the numbers from Cinephile along with my man Joe, and we're not where we want to be. All right, Cinephile's back. We were gone for four and a half months. We're thrilled to be back, but we got to get the numbers up. So I need this favor from all of you. Subscribe, rate, review. I need all of you to tell at least three friends, three people you know, coworkers, family members, whatever, to subscribe to Cinephile on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. They never have to listen. Okay, let's make that clear. We don't have to force that upon anybody. Just subscribe to get the numbers up. And uh, my family and I will thank you. Subscribe, and if you really want to be really nice, you go to Apple Podcasts, you rate the pod, give us a nice generous review. I rank my movies at a four-way beliefs. You rank the movie at a five stars, and then you go ahead and put a review. That helps up uh, drive currency of the podcast and helps us get rolling. So let's get that out of the way. Please do thank you to spread the word of Cinephile. Thank you to all the uh, birthday wishes I got. Uh, it was indeed my birthday yesterday on Monday, so um, I continued my Sopranos tour. I went with the family to Holstein's on Saturday. That, of course, is the final scene of the Sopranos, that diner. Ice cream, fantastic. We passed on the onion rings. Didn't want to echo too much what Tony and the family did. And Sunday went to Pizza Land, which is featured in the opening credits of the show. By the way, that place is an absolute box. Literally the size of a box, giant oven, heavy set man, sweating profusely, giant pictures of Gandolfini and the Sopranos adorn the walls. But a hell of a pizza. And I'm telling you right now, two slices and a soda for $4.50. Can't get a better deal than that for pizza in North Jersey. Uh, let's kick it off first, though. We're going to have my man Scott Rogowski joining us. He, of course, is my good buddy. We work on DAZN's Changeup. It's our baseball show, 7 to 10 Eastern, Monday through Friday, uh, 10 to 1 with Lauren and Tony. And then the weekend, Cespus Barbecue Guys. Rags is a great guy and a huge movie guy. We get along so well because we can drop Sidney Lumet references while talking about the Padres pitcher, Denelson Lumet. He's a huge fan of Midsommar. We're going to talk about that film along with some other films that he loves. He just watched Lumet's The Pawnbroker again, too, which is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, but let's start with Tarantino. Come on. For me, this was my uh, summer tent pole film. For people like my brother, Spider-Man Away From Home. For people like my wife, it was The Lion King. For me, it was Tarantino's latest. And the story is this. It follows a couple of guys. Rick, who is a fading actor who's used to playing the heavy and now realizes he's being thrust out of Hollywood. And of course his stunt double friend, Cliff. Rick is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Cliff is played by Brad Pitt. Originally, Tarantino said I saw him on Jimmy Kimmel. He's really funny as always. He said that everybody wanted to play Cliff. Everybody wanted to play that role. And he had to convince Leo, no, trust me, Rick is the better role for you. Uh, DiCaprio's best piece of acting is where he's struggling on set with his lines and remembering the certain part of the scene he's supposed to nail and you see him go um, in his trailer and he just berates himself and he gets like in a frothing fury about what, just what exactly he should be doing it's a really excellent sequence and a reminder what a great actor he is and playing a fading actor who's trying to reclaim his magic and he goes out there and nails the scene but uh, like getting ahead of myself. The story is this. It's 1969. Uh, it's late 60s Hollywood, and Tarantino really pours on the period detail and production design in showing this friendship between these two guys, Rick and Cliff. And uh, the first section of the film is these guys, you know, Cliff's tooling around his beautiful car and got the music pumping, checking out the babes, waving goodbye to everybody. Uh, and DiCaprio, meantime, is trying to get a sense of who he is and having some fun. I mean, they really do pay homage to 
films of that age, and clearly Tarantino is a guy who grew up in Los Angeles and uh, has a lot of love and emotion uh, for that era of films. And clearly his encyclopedic knowledge is put to good use. If you know anything about movies of that era, uh, you can get the references. And I don't want to spoil too much, but Steve McQueen shows up. One of the best sequences of the movie is Bruce Lee facing off with Pitt's character. is really funny. Uh, and, of course, Margot Robbie becomes a part of the story. She is Sharon Tate. And um, I thought it was kind of a wasted role for her. I mean, she looks great, obviously, but there's not a lot of substance to the role, which I think is Tarantino's point. I think he just wants to show her as the object of affection and not somebody who's a truly three-dimensional character, because that is not the way she comes across. I mean, she clearly is just somebody who's beautiful, who wants to be an actress and a star, and he really shoots her lovingly in slow motion and the bouncing hair and the, the sunshine, the twinkle in her eyes, etc., but she's not given a ton to do. Having said that, Pitt and DiCaprio really do carry the film. Uh, their charisma is effortless. Pitt's never been cooler, as my friend Adam Amin said, and Leo, uh, obviously very solid actor, clearly one of the best actors of his generation, shows why, again, he jumps in the role with Tarantino. I'm disappointed there wasn't more of my man Al Pacino. He is in one of the first scenes of the movie, playing DiCaprio's agent. is only in one of those scenes, so it's, a, unfortunately for me, a waste of Pacino's talents. First time ever him and QT together. Uh, Bruce Dern is a great actor as well. He shows up just one small scene, um, but I'd love to see some of the actors were cut. Tim Roth was cut from the film. Michael Matz, another Tarantino favorite, is in the movie, but doesn't get uh, as much screen time as perhaps he had originally anticipated. But the movie follows the adventures of these guys tooling around Hollywood, and then the final 30 minutes it gets dark as you start to get the Manson murders involved and Tate and all of that. And of course, I'm very careful when it comes to spoilers. I'm not going to spoil any part of that film for you except to say the best part of the film is the final 30 minutes, and I really do appreciate uh, what Tarantino was doing here. And uh, I'll disagree with Rex Reed on his assessment. Having said all of that, ultimately a Tarantino film for me is, a, is an event. And in this case, I found the film to be a mild disappointment. I thought the first uh, 90 minutes were poorly paced. I thought it was too self-indulgent from Tarantino. You know, so often you watch his films and all of a sudden you're relishing the dialogue or laughing at moments. Those moments were sporadic for me. I, it, it's an easy watch and it's very breezy. And in fact, it's very good that it comes out in the summer because it's like, a, you know, kind of a, a late summer watch. But it, by the same token, what that means means is the film lacks urgency, it lacks passion, and it certainly does not have the memorable encounters, particularly when it comes to dialogue, of his best films. It clearly is not a top five Tarantino film. It's not upper tier uh, Tarantino film. And that's why, to me, you know, I felt partially disappointed. But here's the amazing thing about Tarantino. I say all of that. I'm still giving the film three Maple Leafs because, again, I appreciate his love of Hollywood, the love letter to Hollywood he's portraying, production design, period detail, effortless acting of the cast, but here's the greatness of Tarantino. Even while giving it, for me, a lukewarm review, I'm fully expecting to be one of the best pictures of the year, four Maple Leafs guaranteed. I'm only going to give it three Maple Leafs. But with Tarantino, you go, I can't wait to see it again. Because he's such a great filmmaker. He's such a smart guy. He's such a true auteur that while watching the film and maybe some scenes that I thought were a throwaway, you know, it's like in tennis. When Federer is down, he just throws away a point. Who cares, right? I'm already, I already got broken. I'm down three one-second set. Well, screw it. The set's done. I'll come back again. Tarantino doesn't throw away scenes. You know, there, there's a purpose behind everything. So I feel like in watching the film again, I'll notice more of the details and I'll notice more of what he's going for scene by scene. Um... You know, like in some ways, it reminded me of Jackie Brown, a film that was very subtle, and I think at the time felt a bit like a disappointment coming off of Pulp Fiction. And then over time, when I watched it again, I was able to appreciate its rhythms more and its maturity as well. So I hope that's the case with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I hope that my appreciation for the film grows again. I'm not in a rush to go see it in the theater again, but uh, I am giving it three minute beliefs. If you're a Tarantino fan, I do recommend it. And I should also mention, I do think the audience always counts as a big part of your appreciation of a movie. 
my wife was bored, she was complaining, said the movie was average. So I think that that also ends up hurting your movie viewing when the person you're with isn't quite as ecstatic as you. Joe has seen the film. Joe, what did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I'm actually in the other camp. I liked it quite a bit. I agree with you. I think Al Pacino should have been in the film more than just that those few scenes that he was in, but I thought the cast was fantastic. Leonardo DiCaprio loved him in this role, loved Brad Pitt in this role, and I really did enjoy the structure and the pacing of the story. This also might be recency bias, but I did genuinely appreciate the originality of the story and also the fact that he was able to recreate the, like the Sunset Strip to make it look like it did in 1969. Yeah, like I said, his attention to detail and decor, I believe the film, Joy, it was either $75 million or $90 million was the budget. So, I mean, he really did. Listen, QT's going to spend some money on this sucker and make sure he recreates it as well as he can. I particularly like where Tate went to go see one of her films, um, and he's got Cinerama, I believe it is, in Hollywood. It looks like exactly like it did back in the 60s, or at least those pictures that I would have seen of the film back then. So no budget was spared, and I'm with you on that. You know, In a film world in which there's so much recycled and there's so much stuff that's just sequels and superhero movies, it is nice that Tarantino doesn't rely on any of that, although I do think he recycles. He recycles things from his own brain. That's the difference. He's not He's not recycling. He's, he's watched all these movies as a kid, and he's, you know, hearkening back to all that stuff, and it's like Tarantino's mind is recycled up on the screen. I agree with you, but I have to ask really quick, did you see Sam Jackson's cameo? I didn't. Sam Jackson's in the movie? Where is he? Okay, I won't give too much away, no spoilers, but the scene where Leonardo DiCaprio has to play the heavy on that Western show, and he walks into the bar, and he looks over to the left, Sam Jackson sitting at the table playing cards. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Blink and you missed it. You can consider me fooled. I can't believe that... Uh... QT snuck a fast one on me there. That's great. <laughs> Good eye. Wait, wait, you saw that on your own, Joe? Or did you read that afterwards? I saw it on my own. Yeah, because I thought, okay, surely he's going to have some lines if they're showing him in here. But no, it just turned out to be a cameo, which made me appreciate the decision even more. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny the way it works. Once again, check out Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Quentin Tarantino. Our Mount Rushmore we'll be doing momentarily is the best films of Tarantino's career. Always a fun topic, that Mount Rushmore, but one of the best directors, of course, of our era. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Some entertainment news to get to here. Mahersh Ali joining Rami Season 2. Yes, my man Hirsch. Season 2, it's one of my favorite shows on TV. Ali's been cast in a special guest role. Apparently he's a huge fan of Rami Youssef. Season 2 of Rami slated to premiere in 2020. It's going to delve further into his spiritual journey, finding a new Muslim community and embracing a deeper commitment to Islam. Uh, the story of Rami, he's on a spiritual journey in the politically divided New Jersey neighborhood. That sounds a little heavy, but I'm telling you right now, it's very, very funny. In addition to being those themes, which you don't often see on television anywhere, it's nice that Rami mixes in humor. His stand-up comedy also is very funny. You can check it out on HBO. Can't wait for Hirsch and him. Tarantino debating whether directing a Star Trek movie would really be his last. This was on EW.com. He said, I don't know if I'll do it or not about directing a Star Trek film from a script by Mark L. Smith, who wrote The Revenant. I've got to figure it out. Mark wrote a really cool script. I like it a lot. There's some things I need to work on, but I really, really liked it. So it could be his 10th and final film. And then he says, you know, I think it has to count. A year ago, I was thinking in his pompous auteur voice, okay, if I do Star Trek, naturally my last one would have to be the one I wrote. Now I'm like, no, no. If I want to do Star 
Trek that much. I need to want to do it that much. We'll see. So that could be his 10th film, although he did say he wants to take a little break right now after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. DiCaprio worrying that traditional filmmaking becoming a dinosaur in the age of streaming. DiCaprio said, quote, when he told Variety, we're entering this age of streaming where things are so immediate and all of a sudden you have a new show, eight episodes of a new brilliant show, Rami, hint, hint, that comes on you can watch almost every other day. So when you're talking about a movie that's shot on film where you have all of Hollywood Boulevard that like physically transformed it in 1969 with no CGI, this is kind of a real throwback to an era of filmmaking we're not going to see anymore. In a way, it is a bit of a dinosaur. I just hope we're going to have this communal theatrical experience of going to see a great piece of art altogether and enjoy it. Couldn't agree with Marty, uh, excuse me, couldn't agree with him more on that, DiCaprio. Also, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, going to play 14th Century Knights, Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, which just makes me think of Spaceballs. I mean, you're, you're, uh, your Schwartz is as big as mine. Let's see how you handle it. If this film is made, it'll be the first one Damon and Affleck have written and starring together since penning the Oscar-winning script for the 1997 film Good Will Hunting. It tells the story of two French knights who are best friends and become mortal enemies after one returns home and accuses the other of raping his wife while he was at war. The two knights are sentenced to duel to the death, where if the war veteran loses, his wife will be found guilty of falsely accusing his ex-best friend will be burned at the stake. And lastly, The Irishman, the film I've been waiting for my whole life, I feel like. $160 million from Netflix with the greatest filmmaker of all time, Martin Scorsese, reuniting with Robert De Niro, their ninth film together, also including Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel, longtime Scorsese collaborators, and involving Bobby Cannavale, Anna Paquin, Ray Romano, going to be opening the 57th New York Film Festival. Of course, when I got the tweet yesterday, I said I'm ponying up the bucks. So I got one seat for opening night, New York Film Festival, to watch The Irishman. In addition to that, by the way, you can't just pay like 50 bucks for the one ticket. you got to pay a lot more than that to get vouchers for the other films. So you know what, Joe? I will have some extra passes to pass along to you because I'm sure I will not be able to see 10 movies during the 10 days of the New York Film Festival, but you bet your ass I'll be there for The Irishman. I cannot wait. Long gestating crime drama. First time ever Pacino and Marty together. Seriously, Joe, how hyped are you? I am so excited for this. I didn't realize this, but yeah, you're right. Al Pacino and Martin Scorsese have never worked together. And it seems like they should have met up at some point for some sort of movie. So I'm going to see it just for that. But also, there's a few scenes filmed in my neighborhood in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. So the day that they were filming it, I walked past the set and I scoped out the craft service table. But I don't know if I would pay $450 to see this. 450 bucks. You get an opening night ticket, and you also get a voucher to see 10 other movies. So, in my head, Joe, I'm paying 450 bucks to see this movie, and after that, it'll be a bonus when you get those other movies. All right, Scott Rogowski now. We're going to talk to him about Midsommar and other great films. Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. They started with the perfect suitcase, crafted with features that make travel more seamless. Now they offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems, so all you have to think about is where you're headed next, because getting away means getting more out of every trip to come. Now, Away knows that everyone has a different travel style. That's why they make their carry-on an array of colors, two sizes and two materials, strong yet flexible, polycarbonate, and an anodized aluminum. Honestly, as soon as I got my own version, I said, I'm tired of having black suitcases. Every time 
time you go to the airport, you're waiting for the carousel, you get these, everyone's got a black suitcase, it's not going to work. So I got a beautiful white suitcase from away, it's a little bit bigger than a carry-on, and I'm telling you, it's perfect. As soon as I saw the suitcase, I said, that's a good-looking suitcase, it's going to stand out, it's reliable, it's fresh, it's lightweight and durable, it's made to last for a lifetime of travel. Honestly, a 100-day trial lets you try any away product in the world. Think about that, a 100-day trial, a limited lifetime warranty means they'll fix or replace your bag if it ever gets damaged, built-in compression helps you pack more in. You get a range of unique personalization offerings, including hand painting and TSA-approved combination locks. Keep your belongings safe. That was the first thing I saw. My God, I haven't had a lock since I was in high school. This is great to actually have a lock once I get on my stuff. And the removable laundry bag to separate dirty clothes from clean clothes. That's huge. Whenever I'm traveling, my wife, we got four boys. All of a sudden, I got a laundry bag as well. This is a huge win. Trust me. It's a lot more easier to have. And I've got the bigger carry-on, which is even better because it's honestly, you get a little bit more space, a little bit more bang for your buck. Um, once again, it's still got the 100-day trial, lifetime warranty, and that laundry bag, which is invaluable to me, and an optional ejectable battery. Keep your phone charged. Seriously, how good is that? When's the last time you said, hang on, my phone's out of juice. Don't worry, we are good to go. So suitcase is designed to last a lifetime. Free shipping on any away offer within the contiguous USA, Europe, and Australia. And the suitcase is perfect for me. So honestly, this is the offer right now. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash cinephile. Use promo code cinephile during checkout. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. Once again, $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash cinephile and use the promo code cinephile. It is absolutely fantastic. Seriously, this is the way to go right now. If you're traveling all the time, even if you're traveling once in a while, Away Luggage is the one for you. And now it's time to bring in my man Scott Regalzi. That's right, co-host on Change Up on the Zone, our live look around MLB Whip Around show, and also a noted cinephile. I knew I had a kindred spirit the first time I saw Danielson Lament pitching for the Padres, and Scott's eyes lit up, and we both raced to make a Sydney Lament reference. We're taping this right now after doing a three-hour show, so our energy may have waned slightly, but. Rags, I'm not really sure which direction to go in here, but let's start first with Midsommar, uh, which I've been, I've, I go with Midsummer just to try to you know, anglicize it, but Midsummer may actually be the correct pronunciation. You and I both felt this was one of the best films of the year. You were more excited than I was. As soon as you saw the trailer, you go, God, I'm obsessed with this movie, but you and I both think it's one of the best films of the year, as demented as it is. Midsommar, I use the proper Swedish pronunciation to get the respect it deserves, because it is a movie worthy of your respect. Uh, just beautifully shot, expertly crafted, building the suspense, it's a fairy tale, really. You know, a grim fairy tale. Yeah, Grimm's uh, fairy tales. Grim in the sense of the word grim, and the guy's name was also Grim. But if you if you actually talk to Ari Aster, he was planning the writing of this film to follow the archetypes of those those old tales. Uh, the Joker who meets his demise in a certain way, and you know the the lovers who go their separate ways. I mean, there's there's a lot of pagan mythology in this film it's very twisted but what really makes it unique is the lighting palette and the scheme that's used it's bright daylight for most of the film in contrast to his previous movie hereditary where a lot of the scares take place at night and a lot of people are saying it's actually an opposite to hereditary dealing with similar themes uh there's paganism in this one and of course satan worship there's there's a cult element to both movies uh but how about payment hail payment there are actually some theories that Payman is carried over into Midsommar and that perhaps the demon is behind some of this. But, uh, but Ari Aster has denied that. Well, it's crazy to watch the film because it has so many elements to it. Um, 
you know, I thought it was Kubricking at times, and the fact it was so chilling, and the tone of the film, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, dark and it, darkly funny at times. Clearly, like Ari Aster's having fun with conventions of the genre and such. But you had a great comparison for it. You took to Twitter. You were so impassioned about the film, and said that Midsommar was a combination of films. I don't know specifically which ones that you felt that was reflective of, but I feel like Gummo may have been in the mix. Yeah, Gummo meets The Sound of Music, perhaps, or uh, The Wicker Man meets uh, The Seventh Seal. Um, you know, the Wicker Man with, with Nicolas Cage. Right. And, Not- and, and the seventh seal, the Ingmar Bergman film, it was Death Plays Chess. And- right. right. Yeah, but the Christopher Lee version of uh, the Wicker Man, right? Or is it, right. That, that's, that's apparently even, have you seen that one? I haven't seen the original, though. No. The original Wicker Man. Well, that, that should be next on our list, our movie club okay. that we're starting here at Change Up. But uh, no, I, I invited a lot of people to actually send me their own uh, mashups of, of what Midsommar can be compared to. And uh, we got some good ones there. Yeah, I, I said it was like, um, I think Eyes Wide Shut meets Chinatown, you know? So. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a bit of a stretch. I don't know where, I don't quite know where Chinatown comes into play, but... I just love Chinatown. However, it's a great... you, however you cut it, this is a, a, a movie, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I don't even like scary movies. I don't like the the ring with, you know, the, the ones with these creepy women, girls on the ceilings and their eyes are all black and their hair is all in the front of their face. And it's like, what are these? And the jump cuts and all that kind of scare. Right. It's cheap, tawdry horror. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, yeah. this is well-crafted, artisanal horror. And it really, it, it, I mean, he, he brings it in every frame. And also, just a real excess of nudity, which is, I know is something you look forward to in a lot of films. You want to be able to just see a... I mean, it's just a plethora of pubic hair at one point. Full frontal male, a lot of mentions of pub- pubic hair in particular. Uh, but yes, Jack Rayner does bear it all. <laughs> An actor who is willing to literally uh, show himself in all manners and suffer for his craft. Mr. Skin is all over this film. Mr. Skin gives it uh, four scrotums or whatever the rings is. <laughs> all right. As you've definitely got Taj a little bit loose here as we're taping after the show. Uh, you went went back, because we were talking about Danielson Lament, Padre's picture, but Sidney Lament, one of the great directors of all time. I'm so happy you and your girl, Allie, went back and watched The Pawn Broker this weekend. Yeah. For people unfamiliar, listen, you know Lament, you know, Serpico, Dogged Afternoon, The Verdict, Long Day's Journey Tonight, uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, is last film you and I both love. But how about The Pawn Broker? For those who are unfamiliar with this great Rod Steiger film. One of the lesser discussed uh, films in Lumet's oeuvre, 1964, based on the 62 novel by Edward Lewis Wallant about a a Holocaust survivor who loses his wife and children in, in, in the concentration camps. And 25 years later, we see him living his middle-class life in New York City, running a pawn shop in Harlem. And he interacts with, you know, the, the denizens of the neighborhood who uh, he treats as scum and rejects. He regards them as such. But, well, at least that's on the outer, uh, on first blush. When you, when you get into the film, you realize, well, he actually does have love. The person who you think is numb to the world after the tragedies and horror he's witnessed turns out he does have some humanity left in him by the end of the film and the climax. So uh, just expertly acted every single role in this movie. Geraldine Fitzgerald uh, plays the solicitous uh, uh, charity worker in the neighborhood. And I, I can't recommend this one enough, too. Uh, go back, watch The Pawnbroker, Bye Bye Braverman, another Lumet film. I mean, he's has so many great movies. We all talk about the big ones. But uh, get into the deep cuts a little bit. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, 12 Angry Men's a classic. Of course, Lee J. Cobb. And you were thinking about doing 12 Angry Managers when it comes to baseball. If you can get Dick Williams, perhaps, in the film or Dick other. Martin, Earl Weaver. Uh, you got to throw Dallas Green in there. Uh, Lee Elia. Hal McRae. Hal McRae is on the list. Bobby Cox. Mm-hmm. John McGraw. 
Leo the Lip de Rocher. We will do a 12 Angry Managers on Change Up on DAZN, so make sure you tune in for that. Give me the clip that Steiger, you and Allie were, were texting about, that one line he has about the whole mechanics of what he's doing. There's a great monologue that Rod Steiger has. By the way, and, and this role was a star-making role for Steiger, who four years later won Best Oscar for uh, In the Heat of the Night. Uh, but in 64, he was playing this much older man, it's a tremendous makeup job, too, to make him look like this bald man, this wispy hair. Allie couldn't believe when I, show, when I was showing her Steiger's acceptance speech to uh, the Academy Award. He's like, wait, she's like, that's, that's the actor who was Saul Nazarman? He looks like a middle-aged man. He's like, no, yeah, that's called the magic of Hollywood. You know, right. you, you, the makeup department, hair and makeup. But uh, there's a great scene where he's talking to his apprentice, Ortiz, in his shop, who says, Ortiz says, how are you people so good with business? You people, you know, a little Jewish allusion there. And Saul Nazarman says, you people, you people, oh, okay. Well, it starts with 3,000 years of nothing. And then you have one piece of cloth. You save up for a penny, you buy a piece of cloth for one penny. You cut it in two, you sell it for one penny more. Then you take that extra penny, you buy another piece of cloth. Cut the three pieces, sell it for two pennies more. You repeat that process again and again and again for 300 years. And you, before you know it, you realize you have a mercantile heritage. You are a merchant. And, and <laughs> it's just a beautiful monologue uh, basically describing uh, the Jewish people and how they came from nothing following this bearded you know, legend of the Bible of wandering the desert for 40 years to becoming you know, persecuted and being called names because of their mercantile heritage, which was just born out of, out of necessity, out of, uh, out, of, out of desperation and, and, and hopelessness. Can you explain to me why Jews are so funny? You're hilarious. Gary Shaling, one of my all-time favorites, Richard Lewis, Jerry Seinfeld, I mean, Woody Allen, I mean, Mel Brooks. What is it? Why are Jews so funny? Well, this is a question that, that rabbis have bandied about for centuries. No, it, it truly is a question that a lot of people have asked, and, you know, there's some scholarship on this. Um, I think, personally, it comes out of that same, it, that same history of being persecuted and being the pariah and being uh, uh, not only ignored and shunned, but, but discriminated against, you know, and, and, and brutalized wherever they go. You know, every, everywhere the Jews show up, people just don't like them. I want to kick him out. So how do you get on someone's good graces? Well, a sense of humor definitely comes into play. You know, if, if, if you're living in Poland and uh, some local guy at the pub is, uh, you know, he's got pissed off, his wife is mad at him, whatever, and he wants to just beat the crap out of somebody. Well, if you're able to crack a joke to defuse the situation, all right, now this guy's going to like you. Yeah. You know, and he's like, hey, make me laugh, funny man. So you could, you could sort of, uh, you could find your, your niche in the neighborhood, in the community, and... Uh, do it as, as a funny person and as a business person. It's great when you talk about comedic influences, because, listen, you and I could talk about Richard Pryor or George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, Seinfeld, but you can appreciate the classics. You can appreciate the Marx Brothers. I want people listening today to go, you know what, I've heard of the Marx Brothers, I've heard of Night at the Opera, but maybe it's dated, maybe it's not for me. Please sell them on why they should make some time. Okay, fine, Chapman, Buster Keaton, of course, but the Marx Brothers, what is it about those guys? There's uh, there's so many film uh, dynasties over the years and, and and comedy duos and and institutions, but the Marx Brothers nobody beats the Marx Brothers. There was there were five of them: Zeppo, Gummo, <laughs> not nothing to do with Harmony Korine's Gummo, but Zeppo, Gummo, Chico, Harpo, and Groucho. Of course, it's really Chico, Harpo, Groucho, the the three main guys who. Uh, just b- beautiful archetypes of the, the characters. You got the Italian dialect, you got the silent comedy and the visual gags with Harpo and Groucho, the wise ass, the the horn dog, who's always uh, uh, you know, distressing the Margaret Dumont character, the put upon dowager in a lot of these films. Uh, there's 
there's so much to love about Groucho's wit, but it's really the interplay. When the three of them are in a scene together and these outlandish, absurdist uh, tales and, and, and character names, Dr. Quackenbush, it's just... just it's just, they're just delightful films, and what's interesting, they're pre Hayes Code, so they get a lot. They got away with a lot back then right. in the early '30s, uh, before film became more conservative on camera, and, and and the Motion Picture Association dictated what could and not be sh- could could be shown and what could not be shown. So there's some ribald humor, <laughs> some uh, some uh, some rowdiness, and some uh, lasciviousness that I, I mean, I personally get a kick out of. Last one, Airplane might be the most perfect comedy ever. It's got everything in it. Uh, and it really spawned this new era of spoof comedies. You can appreciate the history of comedy and what Airplane meant to people. I, I was watching a little bit again the other day, and it's like, you know the Shirley can't be serious, jive talk and such. But it literally, they threw everything in the kitchen sink in that movie. There's every type of humor here, and it, to me, it's just a perfect comedy film. And as a child, I saw this movie probably well before my time. I think I was eight years old. It is a rated R film. Um, with my friend Scott Goldblatt's house, we're watching and living. I'll never forget where I was because that scene. Robert Stack is is flying the plane. And he says, "Oh boy, the shit's really hit the fan." And it cuts to the office, the air traffic control, and shit is actually flying into frame and hitting a fan. Literally, shit is hitting a fan. I I I was convulsing with laughter. I didn't realize that that such a scene could be written and produced and displayed on screen in a movie. I, I it blew my eight year old mind. And uh, Zucker, Abram Zucker, you have to give him a lot of credit for bringing that type of, you know, you could call it sophomoric humor, but um, it's the National Lampoon era humor. It's, it's, it's 70s humor. There's a new generation of comedians, um, the guys who wrote Animal House and then went on to do Caddyshack. I mean, it, it all born out of that era. So, so many great comedies in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, lastly, Andy Kindler, you've introduced me to, who has two of the greatest jokes ever. Uh, please check out Andy's work online. He's a friend of yours from Queens, Mets fan. But please repeat the two jokes. Uh, one is about Joan Rivers. One is about Jim Belushi. Well, Andy Kindler, uh, if you don't know Andy Kindler, really, do yourself a favor. Just Google Andy Kindler. Listen to his State of the uh, Union addresses at, at Montreal just for last comedy festival. Watch his stand-up. He is hysterical. And if you like movies like Adnan does and you listen to Cinefile, obviously you're a fan of, of the genre. He loves bringing in old pop culture references. I mean, he, he does say that his comedy is compared, he has been compared to Joan Rivers. Um, not his comedy, but uh, critics think he too will die from a routine procedure. <laughs> so that's one of his jokes. And then the all-timer is, who died and made Jim Belushi a star? <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing Andy Kindler's material Check him out. Andy is the best. I love you, Andy. Oh, too good, man. Scott Rogowski, follow him on Twitter. Uh, follow him on Instagram. He's hysterical. Obviously, you know him from his work, HQ Trivia, but he's done a lot of other things in comedy. If you Google Scotty's name, you'll see all the stuff he's done. Uh, we have a blast together at Changeup. I, I didn't think I'd ever match wits with anybody who would make me laugh as much as you, especially with the movie references. So I appreciate you gracing Cinephile and offering your acumen on a wide array of subjects. Like that. We talked horror, Lumet, spoof comedies. It's the best. I didn't think tonight could get any better after that Chris Martin, uh, Kobe Allard trade. But here we are, Adnan, talking airplane, Lamette. I love it. And now Trevor Bauer gets traded. But this is still more exciting, this conversation. Yeah, visit slash changeup. Uh, couldn't it be simpler to sign up for a free month of the zone? Thanks, Rex.
How often do you think about your socks? If you're like I used to be, not much. But I recently discovered socks that changed the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Seriously, Bombas are so good. The style of it, they're comfortable, it's high quality, and they've got a real philanthropic mission, which I really appreciate. Honestly, you're buying a pair of Bombas socks, and they don't need a pair to somebody you need. Seriously, what could be better than that? You're not only getting socks that fit well, that are comfortable, that feel and look great, and you're also helping somebody else. It's honestly the most comfortable socks I've ever felt in my life. Super soft natural cotton. Every pair comes with arch support, which I kind of got flat feet, so this is a big help. A seamless toe and a cushioned footbed. Comfy but not too thick. Honestly, and it's not just like comfortable stuff that's like clunky. It looks really good. You got colors, patterns, lengths, styles, whatever kind of thing you want to show off, different feels to them. Bombas are what I feel socks really should be. So honestly, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash cinephile today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash cinephile for 20% off. Bombas.com slash cinephile. Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks so much to Scott Rogowski. Once again, you can check him out with me tonight on Changeup on uh, DAZN as we're given a month-long free trial. And, of course, the show is live on Twitter tonight. All right, Mount Rushmore, Tarantino Films, one of the great filmmakers of all time. I think it's fairly straightforward. I'll be honest with you. I mean, we're not going to be included in four rooms, for God's sakes. Pulp Fiction is an absolute classic, one of the great films of all time, 1994. It's like a shot of adrenaline to your heart. It's impeccably crafted, so well written, uh, audaciously funny, and it's got a perfect cast all around it. Pulp Fiction is a no-brainer. I just watched Reservoir Dogs a little bit the other day, just the first scene in particular, what Madonna's like a virgin is, why Mr. Pink don't tip. Later on, Mr. Pink doesn't like his name. Where's the commode in this dungeon? I got to take a squirt. Um, stuck in the middle with you, Michael Madsen, dancing around. I mean, it's, how would you like it if every time you had to take a piss, you had to do a handstand? I mean, th- there are so many memorable pieces of dialogue in that film. Uh, the entire cast, obviously, uh, Buscemi, Harvey Keitel, Chris Penn is great, Tarantino himself, Tim Roth. Whole cast, electric. I love Reservoir Dogs. Great crime film. I'd announced the, the beginning of a really important filmmaker and was a huge moment at the Sundance Film Festival, which Robert Redford could really hang his hat on. So Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, to me, are no-brainers. I did like The Hateful Eight a lot more than most people, although I don't know if I can put it top four. I will go with... Um, I'm going to go with Inglorious Bastards just because it's revisionist history. It's so well set up. And again, speaking of great opening scenes, I mean, that first 10 minutes of the way might be as good as any 10 minutes in a Tarantino film. Shoshana! Christoph Waltz um, is so insidious with his evil. The way he shifts from English to French, uh, the way that camera movement is such a great shot by Tarantino as the family's talking, and he slowly tracks down. You see them hiding there in the basement, just terrified. Like a rat's trying to like scurry away from this uh, terrible Nazi upstairs. Um, again, really good cast for the entire movie. And I'll go with Django Unchained. Again, revenge fantasy uh, changes the entire trajectory of what happened. Um, exactly what you wished could have happened. Slaves just taking vengeance against these horribly, virulently racist people. Great set pieces involving DiCaprio and Waltz and Jamie Foxx. That's my Tarantino Mount Rushmore. I'm going to go with Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Glorious Bastards, and, uh, and Django Unchained. Kill Bill Volume 2, I like a lot. I like it more than Kill Bill 1, so I would put that in the mix. Again, I do like the dialogue. I like David Carradine's performance, him and Uma Thurman together, talking about Spider-Man, all that kind of stuff is really good. 
Um, and there's certainly some moments that I would like to be inclined to put it in there. Jackie Brown, I do think, is perennially underrated. I don't put it Mount Rushmore, Tarantino, but I do think it's better than I realized at the time. And I love Robert Forster. If you like Robert Forster, check out a previous episode of Cinephile. He's one of the best guests we've ever had on this podcast. He was so funny and told so many great stories, including about Jackie Brown. So that's my foursome, Joe. How about you? I mean, I agree with you on a lot of it. I think that Reservoir Dogs, you have to put on... It's so iconic, so quotable. Pulp Fiction, top, what, three most influential movies of the 1990s. After that, I would have to throw on Inglorious Bastards. And I was watching this interview yesterday of Quentin Tarantino talking about the film where he was saying how he almost shut down production on the film because he couldn't find the right actor to play Christoph Waltz's character. So he called in his producers and said, I have a concern. Maybe let's shut down the production of the movie because I really don't know if anyone can play this part. And then the next day they found Christoph Waltz and he gave this awesome audition. And when he left the room, they said that they all high-fived each other. So I have to put it on there just for Christoph Waltz's performance. And then I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this, but I would throw on The Hateful Eight. Wow, I like it. All right. Good stuff, Joe. Mainly because I really appreciate films that are engaging, captivating, but only take place in one setting. So I would definitely throw it on there for that reason. I, I tell you why I love The Hateful Eight. I saw it in Dallas. I was so excited. Again, every Tarantino film is an event, and I saw it in 70 millimeter, and it's gorgeous to see in 70 millimeter. Like, you know, Christopher Nolan's birthday is today. Happy birthday to him. Uh, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, those guys have, have done uh, restorations and screenings of their films in 70 millimeter, and it is. I mean, God, if you're a cinephile, just swooning watching the screen. And the audio was so good. I can't remember the name of the theater in Dallas. If you're from Texas, you'll know or tweet the show, Cinephile ESPN. But yeah, I remember it was like an event. I was there for college football and I went and caught it in 70 millimeter. And the, the picture quality was so pristine and the audio quality was amazing. Every single time, I'm like, close the door, close the door. That howling wind. I swear I can still get, I still get chills thinking about how cold it was sitting in a perfectly air conditioned warm theater. God, it was so well done uh, the way they did the whole scene. And there was an intermission. I mean, there was an overture. Like, that's a big part of it to me, right? It's, it's a film-going experience. When I went and saw that movie, that was an absolute experience to see Hateful Eight, and I love Tarantino's dialogue. I think it's on full display. That Sam Jackson monologue he tells about killing Brewster and son, as he said, that was his, um, as he viewed it, that was like Hickey, you know, in... Um Oh, that great play. The Eugene O'Neill play. Was it Long Day's Journey in the Night? Whatever it was. Uh, yeah, he goes, that's like Hickey. You know what I mean? He's, he's giving this big speech, and he's like, instead he's talking about a guy filleting him. It's not exactly what uh, you'd expect, uh, you know, the great players of the past to be doing, like Eugene O'Neill or Arthur Miller. But that whole sequence, the way he relishes the dialogue, you know, the whole joke about getting a letter from Lincoln. Um, I love the cast because he reunites so many classic Tarantino guys, obviously like Madsen playing Joe Gage. So I'm with you. I, I'm surprised people didn't like Hateful Eight as much. Certainly the Academy ignored it. You know, Normally, Tarantino's always good for an original screenplay nomination. Did not get nominated for Hateful Eight, even though it came out end of the year. Perfect time for awards buzz. Maybe people found it a little bit slow, thought there wasn't enough action, didn't think the ending was good enough. But I love the score as well from Ennio Morricone. I should say that's the one thing the Academy did recognize was the score. It gave him a long-awaited Oscar. But, yeah, I, I'm with you on Hateful Eight being underrated. It takes place in one setting, heavy on the dialogue. I think if you like Tarantino, if you like Reservoir Dogs, a bunch of criminals being stuck together, how could you not appreciate the film? 
Also, I will point out Walter Goggins' performance in that. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Very underrated. Yeah, good call. Goggins is really funny in that. All right, that's our Tarantino Mount Rushmore. If you disagree, I'm sure you do. Let us know. Um, tweet us right now at Cinephile Pod, C I N E P H I L E P O D, or you can tweet me individually, Adnan S. Verk. The Butter Binge. All right, lastly, before we close, let's talk about the Bada Binge. A few episodes here to discuss. Another Toothpick, which is Season 3, Episode 5. you got a great scene here um, <laughs> involving Charles S. Dutton. You know, he was a star on Broadway television, the 90s sitcom Rock. He was in the movie Rudy. Uh, he was in David Simon's The Corner. He's got a great um, storyline here in this one, as you see Tony take advantage of him. But it's mainly remembered for the scene of Bobby Bacala Sr., that's right, Burt Young from Rocky, killing his golf club swinging brood of a godson and an innocent witness while coughing up pints of blood. There is a ton that goes on in another toothpick. Season 3, Episode 5, written by Terrence Winter, mainly Bacala Sr.'s assignment to kill Brian Tarantino's Mustang Sally. Now, that incident is completely insane. You've also got Ralphie's continued insubordination. Uh, disrespectful jokes at Gigi, at Tony, Vito... Uh, Artie Buco's pathetic meltdown after his crush Adriana quits her hostess job at Nuovo Vesuvio. And the midlife crisis that results. He even starts wearing an earring. I mean, if you're a fan of Artie Buco, that scene where he's got the earring and you clearly see this guy is in the throes of midlife crisis is amazing. You've also got Tony's relationship with Meadow, damaged by his earlier racism toward her mixed-race boyfriend, not helped here by his I-told-you-so attitude after a black man steals her new bike. And as I mentioned, the fact that Charles S. Dutton, a patrolman who Tony resents for pulling him over for speeding after his couple's therapy session with Carmela, declines a bribe, then gets busted down and robbed of overtime pay as a result of Tony's phone calls with Zellman, has to take a second job as a cashier at a fountain store. Plenty in this episode. And less gruesome, but nearly as disturbing, Artie's drunken needling of Chris, his subsequent tearful confessions to his old friend Tony, and his mortifying dinner with Adriana. I mean, that is the equivalent of you seeing a pathetic man uh, hitting on a younger woman. That episode is it. What I want to focus, though, is Season 3, Episode 6, University. It's one of the most infamous episodes, one of the most controversial episodes. You know, I drive every day here to work. I live, I work now in Secaucus, New Jersey, MLB Network, and I live in Hohokus. I know, great names. And on the way on Route 17. Every day I drive by the Bada Bing. That's right. Satin Dolls, the strip club, and it says right up front, the original Bada Bing. And every time I look over and I say, yep, that's where Ralphie killed the stripper. And that's the episode of University, one of the most intricate and complex Sopranos episodes, as well as one of the hardest ones ever to watch. That scene uh, it's about cruelty and violence and bleakness. And when he kills a 20-year-old single mother and stripper, Tracy, played by Ariel Kylie, beaten to death by the father of her never-be-born child, it was as controversial as it got. The episode prompted television critics and cultural commentators, including one of the writers of this book, of course, I'm quoting from The Sopranos Sessions, Matt zoller cites and Alan Sepinwall, to ask if The Sopranos had stepped over the line separating anthropological frankness from pornographic obsession, particularly when it came to abusive women and was terrorizing the audience as well. Well, what is undeniable is that episode is unforgettable, and even that final shot, you see the women dancing on stage, you can tell 
it's such a soulless occupation. It's a sad occupation. And the fact that Silvio beats Tracy as well, the sexual degradation, Tracy's in a three-way with a cop, countless indignities. I mean, at any point, if you feel like the Sopranos are guys that you like, if you want to hang out with a bunch of these mobsters, if you watch this show University, you realize just what scumbags these guys are. Even the VIP room bouncer, George the bartender, he skims the women's take by demanding 50 bucks plus a free blowjob for admittance. And Tony Soprano's in there along with the rest of his buddies. The Bada Bing is basically arena of flesh, and it makes you realize that these guys... I mean, as, as Matt and Al write in the book, to say that The Sopranos takes a Darwinian view of social relationships, we're putting it mildly. Celebrating relative success in life by treating people lower on the social ladder as unfeeling servants. If you haven't seen it in a long time, check out the episode of uh, University, because Caitlin, the one character, a doppelganger for Tracy in some ways, and you've also got Meadow's story as well. One more episode, Second Opinion. You know, my man Michael Lombardi, i got to ask him about this. Second Opinion is one of his favorite episodes. Season 3, Episode 7, written by Lawrence Connor directed by Tim Van Patten, because he said that that was his people of his generation. Mike has told me, you know, his parents were like that. No matter what the doctor said, you believe them, and you always felt like they had something to say. And so second opinion is about that. When the doctor told you you were dying, that's it, death sentence. Whatever whatever happened, you were done. And second opinion really is, um, you know, the... The midpoint of season three is the story starts to pivot a little bit. You get Carmela's session with Krakauer a little bit, you know, her therapy there, and Freud's talking cure, what that means. Melfi's very next act is he's trying to help Carmela as well. Then also Angie Bump and Sarah pleading her case to a more sympathetic figure in Carmela and getting her car smashed by Tony as punishment. You know, Chris complains to Tony, but all the hazing, other indignities he's suffering under Polly. Um, you know, you start to see more and more friction and more and more frustration with all these characters coming together, and you really see that in this episode. But really, it is all about Junior and getting that second opinion from the doctor. Um, also of note, in terms of the casting in this episode, um, you look at one of the actors, uh, a subtle, piercingly intelligent character actor appeared in The King of Marvin Garden's Dog Day Afternoon Car Wash and Prissy's Honor. Died March 23, 2001 at age 77 while waiting for a city bus in Queens just before this episode aired. That's the character uh, who gets Sully Boyer is the actor's name. He plays the therapist, Dr. Krakauer, in this episode. Uh, that's in the conversation between Carmela and the therapist. Pretty crazy, just unfortunately, the way his demise happened. Killed while waiting for a city bus in Queens two weeks before this episode aired. A guy who was in Dog Day Afternoon, Prissy's Honor, Car Wash, King of Marvin Gardens, Sully Boyer. There's your uh, character actor of the past to focus on. Once again, thank you for checking out Cinephile. Spread the word, all right? Subscribe, rate, review, help us get this thing rolling. Once again, thanks to my man Scott Rogowski. So funny, so great. Go watch a Sydney Lament film just for him or go see Mitsubishi tomorrow again. I'm Adam Amber. Thanks so much for listening. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. 
Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.